we are in Mark chapter 15 in our consideration of Mark's gospel. And uh, let's all stand together then as we reverence the reading of God's word. Mark 15 verse 37. But Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the spirit. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he cried out and gave up the spirit, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. You may be seated. We have considered the trial of Jesus, his crucifixion, and today we will see his death. We pause to give consideration to the audacity of a trial where the creation puts the creator on trial. These men set out to murder their maker. We saw how Mark drew attention to the people involved in the crucifixion of Jesus, their mockery, their cruelty. Yes, even as we saw their apathy as the religious leaders showed up and then left to go to the temple. It was, after all, the Passover. Show up to see their handiwork and then come on, let's, let's go worship God. It was 9 o'clock in the morning on that Friday so long ago when Jesus was crucified. Mark 15, 25, it was the third hour. It's 9 a.m., and they crucified him, and the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. Jesus was exonerated before the civil court of Pilate when he said, I find no fault in him, nothing in him worthy of death. The Jews charged him with blasphemy after failing to be able to present anything then that had actually uh, caused him to violate the law of Moses. The required two or three witnesses could not be found. Nobody could agree on anything. Finally, they asked him, and he responded, Yes, and he was indeed the Son of God. He would not deny it. He could not. He was the Son of God. What he said was true, was not blasphemy. But the inscription that was put above him to say why he was executed, the king of the Jews... He was and is the king of the Jews, and not just of the Jews, but he is king of all kings and lord of all lords. They've scourged him. They went through that mockery where the 600 soldiers gathered together and all mocked him and put that crown of thorns on his head. We saw all that. Nine o'clock in the morning, he's nailed to the cross. By three o'clock that Friday afternoon, when the Passover lambs were being killed, when the temple was packed with worshipers, when the town was full of people preparing for the Passover celebration, Jesus died. Three o'clock. He cried with a loud voice, Mark said, and gave up his spirit. We can... See his body hanging there, dead, for all to see. 
for about three hours then, from three o'clock until even, about six o'clock for three hours, his lifeless body hung on the cross. Mark is careful to point out that his death was officially certified. Verse 42, when the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. It had only been a few hours. Earlier that morning, Jesus had been in Pilate's court. Pilate was amazed at the speed of Jesus' death, but the centurion verified it. Called in to testify. John added this detail in John 19 and 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately blood and water came out. Now the presence of this blood and water in Jesus' chest cavity has caused a lot of speculation about Jesus' cause of death. What he actually died from certainly some injury to the to the to the heart uh, I can't speak to that today other than to say what the Bible says they put a spear in his side and blood and water came out they were there to break the legs of those who were crucified and they did break the legs of the two thieves just one more brutal horrific event on that day uh, and you imagine how difficult it is to break a man's leg no doubt they had some kind of hammer I don't know how they did it I thought about it there's nothing in scripture to tell us how they did it other than that they broke their legs the reason they did that was in addition to the obvious trauma to the legs uh, it would keep them from being able to push themselves up to breathe so they would slump down and they would suffocate. It would hasten their death. Their death would only be moments away. But they didn't do that to Jesus. Mark, you see, was taking great attention and care to show us that Jesus was dead already. Even though Mark was writing early in the New Testament era, already there were some who were speculating that Jesus wasn't really dead. But the testimony of the centurion, and if it's one thing those hardened soldiers knew, it was dead. He was dead. He was dead for three hours. The soldiers who came, they all saw it. He was dead. So Mark spingles out then four specific events which we'll give consideration to in today's message around the death of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that he mentions was the darkness. And he's pointing out that this was all playing out in the darkness. Mark 14, 15 and 33, And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness 
over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, I've told you before, this was not an eclipse. It could not have been an eclipse. We know that because a solar eclipse only, only happens on a new moon. And Passover always happens, always happens on a full moon. This was not a solar eclipse. There is no natural explanation for this darkness except to say that God did it for three hours. One writer suggested that this was the time of Jesus' spiritual suffering for our sins. When he endured the darkness of God's judgment, the darkness, yes, even of hell itself, he said, and suffered that full penalty and though this is a very popular view and some of you may have heard it and it is intriguing but the Bible doesn't say that it only tells us that this was darkness we know that darkness was used at least one time before in in God's judgment in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 21 the Lord said to Moses stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt darkness which may even be felt So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now, whatever that darkness was that God brought on the Egyptians so long ago, it was an intriguing kind of darkness. Because for three days, they couldn't see each other. They couldn't even see to leave their place or to get around. They were feeling their way in the darkness. Maybe some of you have visited a cave where they turn the lights out on you just to let you see what that kind of darkness is where you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. Uh, Just complete darkness. This was the kind of darkness that apparently kept them from being able even to light a candle. I don't know how that worked. They had lamps and candles, all sorts of things. Now, the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. They apparently would work there in Goshen, but not in Egypt. For three days, they couldn't see each other. And it brought everything in that nation, of course, to a screeching, grinding halt. Luke uh, describes this darkness in this way in verse 45. He says simply, the sun was darkened. Whether it was a total kind of darkness that would make the stars appear at noon. This was at high noon, by the way. Or whether it was just a general deep darkening of the sun. We don't know. What we do know for sure is that this darkness didn't appear to stop anything that was going on. The crucifixion went on, Passover continued, Pilate was still available, the people were still around the cross. So whatever this darkness was, it did not seem to have the same kind of effect that the darkness had in the land of Egypt so long ago. What was this? Folks, I don't know. I'll just tell you what the Bible says. The sun was darkened. It lasted for three hours. And there was darkness Over the whole land of Israel. What it looked like. What it felt like. We don't know. We do know that there was not any 
message from Jesus that was uttered during that time. For three hours, there was no words that he spoke. Nothing recorded that was spoken to him during that time. But then when Jesus broke the silence, then the mocking crowd showed right back up. And if the darkness had done anything to them, we can't tell it. They were mocking him before, they're mocking him now. Life just seems to be going right on. But there was darkness. The sun was darkened for three hours from noon till three o'clock. God's first act in creation was to turn on the light. God said, let there be light. And so the whole work of creation was done in the light. But on this time, God darkened the sun so that the work of redemption was done in the dark. So we see the darkness. Then Mark tells us about the cries. There were two of them. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood by when they heard it said, behold, he calleth Elias, that's Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink saying, let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Twice then, Mark says, he cried aloud. He shouted. We could even perhaps call it a scream. He was hollering, as we say in, here in Arkansas. He was crying out with a loud voice. Now, considering his weakened condition, considering that his chest cavity was filling up with fluid considering the fact that he was no doubt struggling to breathe and on the verge of death and in fact was dying these shouts were not normal they were in fact supernatural in nature the bible tells us that jesus said seven things from the cross but mark records only these two times when he shouted aloud He singles out the first one and he records it in Aramaic, words that Jesus spoke. And when he cried out, and by interpretation, it is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It leaves us no doubt what was happening there in the darkness. Jesus had been enduring the suffering and wrath of God against sin. The cup that he had prayed so earnestly for in the garden that it might pass from him, now he has drunk it to the dregs. He is experiencing the full force of separation from God as he is judged by God for our sins. Remember, we've seen it again and again. At his trial, he took our place. When he was crucified, he took our place. And now at his death, he's taken our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For he, and that's God, 
made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Mark tells us very, very plainly, very explicitly, what was happening there in the darkness as Jesus would experience God's judgment on him as sinner. Made sin for us. Then there's a second cry. We'll have to pick up John's gospel to understand what he said. John in uh, chapter 19 and verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. John recorded that cry of Jesus with the Greek word, tetelestai, one word. It is finished. It has been done. It's completed. And though Mark did not give us the actual word that Jesus cried, he did give us the meaning very clearly. He cried out and he died. He gave up the spirit. Paul would write about it this way in a couple of passages, very familiar to you, but I'm going to read them to you this morning. Romans chapter 5, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man. Some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15 and 3. I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. That Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures. These two shouted out loud voiced full throated cries. Impossible, not just difficult for a crucified man. Impossible. And yet Jesus did it. Crying aloud so that everybody would know, so that people far away could hear. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Tetelestai, it is finished. Mark then tells us about the veil. The veil. Verse 38. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. I don't know really where I got it in my mind that somehow this happened maybe in the night sometime. I've always tried to picture it. You know, the priest coming in the next day and there's the veil torn in two from top to bottom. <gasps> That's not what happened. I've looked at it again and again, looked at it, and everywhere that it's looked at, it's the same thing. It was at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the holiest day of Judaism, 
on the Passover day, when the temple was packed with worshipers, when people were all around, when they were all there, the priests were all there, Jesus dies, and though his hands are nailed to a cross, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. When we think about a veil, we think about a bridal veil. Change your thinking. This was a curtain. How thick was it? At least four inches, maybe as much as six inches thick. The inside peak of the temple in Jerusalem was 60 feet, way higher than that, more like the steeple out front. 60 feet tall, four at least inches thick. Can you imagine what must have happened and how... These people must have been amazed as they see that thing suddenly begin to rip apart from the top all the way to the bottom. What was behind that? It was the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a symbol of the presence of God, the high priest. And only the high priest went in there. And he only went one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would go in there with the blood of a sacrificial animal to pay for his own sins and then to make an atonement for the people. But there, amazingly, suddenly, when Jesus said Tedelestai and gave up the, the ghost when he died, that veil was torn in two. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us what was going on. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10 and 14 then will sum it up. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now the writer of Hebrews tells us very plainly that Jesus did not enter into the Holy of Holies that was made with men's hands. That means that it wasn't the one there in Jerusalem where he went and made eternal redemption for us. It's in the holiest of all and that is in the very presence of God in heaven. The real presence of God. You see, that holy of holies in the temple was just a picture. It was just a type, a figure of, of the true presence of God in heaven. And that is where Jesus went and, and made that one offering for sins. An offering that was sufficient forever. So that there would never again be a, another need for another animal to give its blood as a sacrifice for sin. No, that, that, that was done. Now, you're going to ask me, 
Well, well, who exactly was it that tore that veil? And I can give you an answer. God did. (laughs) God did. Whether he sent an angel to do it or whether Jesus stopped by to do it on his way, it doesn't matter. God did it. God did it. What we do know is that what was happening there was just a reminder, just pointing out something that this Old Testament sacrificial system whereby a priest would go in and make atonement and seek forgiveness for somebody else, that Old Testament system was now obsolete. No longer would they have to go there on the Day of Atonement. No longer would they have to offer again the blood of bulls and of goats. That tearing of the veil told us that that system has been replaced. There's a new one. A new and living way, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, that he has consecrated for us into the very presence of God. In a practical way, that means that you don't have to go to a priest and ask that priest to go to God for you. Because you can go boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a great image that is. We have a great high priest. We have the one who has made that eternal offering for us so that now we have full access into the presence of God by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul would go on and say in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One God, one mediator. Jesus Christ. Folk, if the church is another mediator, that would be two. If a human priest is a mediator, that would be three or ever how many there were. But there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And that is the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. To be testified in due time. The darkness. The cries. The veil. Last is a centurion. Verse 39. When the centurion. Remember the centurion was a Roman officer. who's in charge of a hundred men. I'm not sure what that would correspond to in modern military terms. Maybe a captain, maybe major. Centurion, over a hundred men. He was in charge that day as far as the human law was concerned. He was standing facing Jesus, watching him as he died. We sometimes picture the cross as if they were very, very high, like 15 or 20 feet high. They They weren't that high. They didn't. Uh, they, they didn't want them up that high. Uh, they, they wanted them down on eye level where you could see all the brutality and just see what Rome had done to them. When they gave Jesus vinegar to, uh, to drink or sour wine, they put it on a sponge and put it on a reed. The reed would have been about that long. So most of us can reach probably about seven foot high. And if we're putting another two foot to it, then Jesus would have been probably, his head would have been about nine feet off the ground. That, that would be about... How high they got him up. And so 
you know, Jesus was right there on eye level. All of that scourging, all of that everything. He put it all out there. Why did the soldiers stand around? Well, because they weren't so high off the ground. They were going to make sure that nobody gave them any help if they weren't supposed to. They were going to make sure that nobody got them down off the cross. No. Uh, That would have brought swift retaliation. So this squad of soldiers was there for the execution. And no doubt they would be posted around the clock until they died. Here's the centurion. At 9 o'clock that morning he was one of 600. Putting a crown on his head. He didn't do it. He gave consent to those who did. The whole band, all 600 of them were there. At 9 o'clock that morning, he was seeing while they took those nails and nailed them in their wrists and took the feet and nailed them through the feet. Tried to hit that nerve, and they were very good at it, by the way, when they went there. They liked to hit the heel in the feet. They've actually excavated bone fragments from the heels of people who had been crucified with the nails. Mark still going through their heel bone. Think about that a minute. That was 9 o'clock. Scourging him, maybe he didn't do it, probably didn't. He was certainly there when it was done. Facing there, we can see him in his uniform, watching Jesus, watching him when the sun darkened, watching him. He stood there facing him. But he heard him cry out, Mark says, and gave up the ghost. And he said, truly, this was the Son of God. There was something in his voice. Remember, I I mentioned that, that crying, just the unique nature of that cry, certainly. Something in what he heard. Something in what he saw, the way Jesus died, he was convinced this was the Son of God. Nine o'clock in the morning, crucified. Three o'clock that afternoon, this was the Son of God. Remind you of what John said in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. It's no small thing for somebody to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what we say when we say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what that centurion said. There had no doubt been many times that he had said that Jesus is the Son of God. 
or, or that Caesar, rather, is the son of God, but now it's something different. Now it's Jesus is the son of God. It was something in that voice. Can't help but think about the time when they sent the soldiers out to arrest him in the temple and they came back and said, you know, we never heard anybody speak like this. He heard something in his voice. And he was convinced this man is the son of God. I want to close out today then by reminding you that there will come a time when this man is going to shout again. He shouted twice that day. He's going to shout again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. How big a shout is that going to be? It's going to wake up the dead. At least those who are believing, believers. He'll shout again. Mark has put this incident very prominently on display. The fact that this centurion, writing as he was to a Roman audience, the fact that this centurion would confess that Jesus was the Son of God, oh, that would carry a lot of weight. It did. The Jews, you see, had rejected Jesus. But that's all right. God says, I'll get a Gentile king to say that he was the king of the Jews. The Jews may have rejected him, but that's all right. We'll get a Roman centurion to say he's the son of God. Yeah. The question for all of us today and for those of you watching from home is this. Will you be found among those who reject him? Those who ignore his incredible work? Or will you be one of those who receive him? For eternal salvation. You see you can know everything that I have talked to you about today. You can know the facts about the death of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't mean that you have believed in your heart. So that you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it does not mean that you have asked him to be your savior. Confessed him to be savior and Lord. And if you don't do that, then you are just as much among those who rejected him and crucified him as that crowd was so long ago. Because you see, all of us in our own way, all of us have affirmed that decision. We were the ungodly, we all were the guilty. We all were guilty of sin. We were all, all were guilty of rebellion. We had all rejected Jesus Christ and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why? Because we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we put our trust in him. And therefore that death of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Not some, but from all. We experience then that eternal salvation, eternal redemption through Jesus Christ. How? By faith 
I'm asking you today. Men and women, boys and girls, young people, I'm asking you. Has there been that time in your life where you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Look what he did for you. Look what he did. Will you receive him or reject him? If you have received him, you can go away this morning rejoicing. Because once again, you've heard the old, old story of Jesus and his love. You can go out of this building so thankful. Yes, I have received eternal redemption. Otherwise, you just go out. Going about your life just like they did. Got things to do, places to go, food to eat, naps to take. Going about my life. Just like the people who saw this event play out so long ago and they just turned and went on. Don't let that be your testimony today. If I could go out there and pull you out of your seat and drag you to this altar and make you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'd do it if I could, but it wouldn't do any good. You have to do it yourself. The Bible says it so simply. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Won't you receive him? Stand together please.